Hello, my name is uh, Jasper Damara. I'm a research lead here at Outlier Ventures. And today I'm excited to be joined by Bitcoin educator and advisor, Dan Heltz. Welcome, Dan. Welcome to the show. So as expected, we are here today to talk about Bitcoin and its rapid developing ecosystem. And for our listeners who missed our previous episode, SOV, we recently came out with a fresh thesis looking at Bitcoin and its ecosystem in which we looked at the main chain and the different side layers. But before we do, Dan, for those who don't know you, you maybe give, give us a quick introduction. Sure. So on the personal brand side, a lot of you might have read my content on Bitcoin. I've been writing about Bitcoin since 2018. I've got a newsletter called The Held Report. I uh, wrote some of the most, I would say, popular articles on proof of work, uh, Bitcoin's early distribution, or Bitcoin's early origin story, planting Bitcoin series. Uh, that content was distributed on social media. I've got 850,000 followers on Twitter, LinkedIn, YouTube, etc. So a lot of people know me from that. And then also on my uh, career side, I was one of the earliest entrepreneurs in the space, was the second acquisition done in Bitcoin. Uh, Zero Block was acquired by blockchain.com in December 2013. And then I came on board there as the first product manager at blockchain. And then over time, worked at a couple other crypto startups. Uh, my last one got acquired by Kraken. And at Kraken, I built out the marketing team from two to 30. So been in the space a super long time. This is... Uh, <laughs> I've been through many, many different bull bear cycles, uh, worked across a wide variety of different products. For me, I think Bitcoin is the most important asset in this space. And I think there's a newly resurgent interest in building on top of Bitcoin. And so that's what I'm excited to discuss with you today. Yeah, that's awesome. And it's great to have an, an OG like yourself here on the show to discuss, obviously, Bitcoin, especially as it's, it's really sitting in the eye of the storm and a lot of interest from different angles um, as we had it do next year. So maybe to set the scene, obviously 2023 has had a very interesting year from an innovation perspective. And if we take it back to the start of this year, it all started with ordinals and then later it moved on to like BRC20s of which we're actually seeing a resurgence today. So it's been a topic of much discussion in the ecosystem as well. So it would be great to get a little bit of your views 10 months into the protocol. Like what are you observing? What are you excited about? And actually, like, what is your view on the entire thing? Probably be useful to go into why do I care? Why do I care that people can buy and sell NFTs or BRC20s on top of Bitcoin? Why is it meaningful? Well, when we look at Bitcoin over a long period of time, you know, most of the acquisition that has occurred for people being introduced to Bitcoin and wanting to use it and understand it and believe in it and hodl it is that it started from a speculative cycle 2013 2017 and 2021 this is undeniable that like 95 percent of adoption has occurred through speculative cycles speculative assets introduce people to a new money you know these people don't understand that bitcoin's monetary properties etc before they buy it they bought it because their buddy bought it or they bought it because the price was going up afterwards they become a you know, a convicted investor, you know, folks like myself and others, we educate them about why Bitcoin's important and why they should hold it onto it as an investment. I noticed with Ethereum at NFT NYC, you know, people were buying and selling NFTs and they had no idea how Ethereum worked. They had no idea what proof of stake or proof of work was. They had no idea how Ethereum's monetary policy worked, but they were introduced to Ethereum through the speculative mechanic of NFTs. So for me, I think to allow Bitcoin to grow and acquire as many new believers as possible, we need to allow it to have all the speculative activities occurring on it as people want. 
um, NFTs, BRC20s, stable coins, etc. Uh, both Solana and Ethereum have largely validated that as a use case and as a way to introduce people to a money. And so I think that Bitcoiners could learn a lot from that. And that's why with Ordinals, Ordinals kind of moved the Overton window around that topic and introduced NFTs and Bitcoin layer one in a way that was very organic and very authentic to the Bitcoin network. For example, the graphic assets actually exist on the Bitcoin blockchain versus Ethereum normally point to an IPFS file. I would argue that's very, very Bitcoin centric of being as decentralized as possible, having permanence having a lasting effect. You know, Bitcoin is the oldest chain and likely to be the old, longest lasting chain ever. And so I believe that like ordinals really represented, you know, that ethos. Also, you know, ordinals uh, aren't smart contracts. They're not necessarily like upgradable smart contracts like on Ethereum, where, you know, certain items in the collection can be altered. These are, you know, inscribed on sats. So these can't be altered after it's done, which makes it much more permanent. So I think it's a very, very good NFT product on a blockchain. Of course, you know, as transaction fees rise, people won't be able to move these around very cheaply. So I think the high value projects will stay on ordinals or layer one. And then layer twos will allow people to transact the lower value ordinals uh, or other types of, you know, tap. Uh, for example, uh, Lightning Labs came out with a, uh, you know, kind of like Lightning Assets sort of framework where you can move assets around on Lightning. So I, I could see, you know, the lower value NFTs or other types of assets being uh, moved around in layer twos. Uh, sorry, that was a very long winded answer, but there's a couple different components to touch on there. Yeah, no, definitely, Dan. And I think there's there's loads to unpack here. I think first your point on users actually not being aware of the underlying technology. I think we believe at Outlier as well that account abstraction is ultimately like very important in this journey and that also will allow us to adopt the next billion users. So already having evidence that the user isn't necessarily like required to go through the entire educational journey like you and I have, have gone through to be able to use this is actually for me like it's it, it screens quite bullish because then you have you have the possibility that this like there's no prerequisite of education required before we can actually use it. So I think that's a very interesting point. And then secondly, also you mentioned around how obviously like ordinals embed the data of like the JPEG or the image or whatever type of digital asset you embed directly onto the main chain without using these pinpointers to like metadata stored of like, like a centralized or like a cloud-based system. And you said like your suspicion is that high value assets that are minted will stay on, on the base layer. And then obviously like the medium of exchange can go through like that routes. Do you think if you would look at different applications here, so you have like NFTs, you have decentralized finance, maybe like more institutional grade DeFi, like what is your suspicion you think um, ordinals will find the closest product market fit with? Like which applications do you suspect will stay on the base layer and which would actually migrate to like meta layers like the L2s and in Lightning Network? or even like sidechains like Stacks and, and RSK? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a very simple premise. There's uh, just two components here. One is, uh, you know, these smart contract capabilities and throughput capabilities of each layer. So, for example, layer one can only handle X amount of transactions and layer twos, depending on the layer two type, can only handle X amount of transactions per second and also have different smart contracting functionalities. So, you know, I kind of see each layer, like let all the layers bloom. Each layer has its own design, technical, and game theoretic trade-offs. 
to where different applications might be better suited for different uh, layers or on layer one versus layer two. The other component, of course, is fees and cost. There's a scarce amount of block space on layer one, much more scarce than the other layer, you know, layer two, et cetera. The other layers are built for scaling and enhanced smart contract functionality. Uh, layer one, though, is quite constricted in terms of number of transactions that can fit in the block. So uh, the fees for those transactions, as the scarce block space has increased demand, we know what happens there with basic economics, the uh, price of the transaction fee goes up. That crowds out any lower value transactions. So we could very easily hypothesize that uh, only higher value transactions should occur on layer one. Those will likely be like net settlement value. You know, we've got like in the United States, we have wires, Fedwire and ACH. Those are all kind of tranched based on, on value that you're trying to move. And so similarly, I think there'd be a tranching of different value types that you're trying to move. And the larger value items will be on Bitcoin layer one. Uh, Nick Carter popular, popularized this concept called cargo ships, not containers, where, you know, instead of individual containers, you put those individual transactions onto a bigger container ship. And that's an L1 transaction. So those little little cargo pieces of cargo containers could be representative of individual transactions in an L2. And that's bucketed into one L1 transaction. Pretty simple to see how that'll break out. It's basically just a, a cost and efficiency stand, standpoint. Yeah, exa- exactly. It, it is also something I think we were thinking about where obviously we, we have this entire flywheel where true ordinals and BRC actually like pushing up transaction fees on the main chain. There's the first time on in the Bitcoin ecosystem, I think, where we are seeing economic incentives for users to look for scalability mechanisms, right? So like we actually see initial, we start to see evidence of users uh, no longer accepting like these, these transaction fees on the base layer, which at this point are, uh, it's pretty expensive to settle transaction in, in dollar denominated value, but they're moving through uh, to the Lightning Network and obviously like the side chains. Maybe if we switch gears into like corporate adoption, because we've recently seen an announcement of Coinbase as well, that they're trying to integrate Lightning Network into their product offering. Uh, out of curiosity, like what do you make out of all of these type of headlines where like large corporate entities also active in the crypto space are starting to adopt this open source infrastructure in this case, like now to own on the Bitcoin uh, main chain? Yeah. Are you speaking about like Coinbase's L2 that they built? Uh, no, it's the, the entity itself. So it's, it's not it's not their L2. It's not the EVM compatible one. It's them explicitly saying that they would adopt Lightning Network. Um, obviously, oh, yeah. there were a lot of questions around how they will actually integrate this, but it's interesting, I guess, to see uh, the movement there. Right? You know, we're going to see different entities, like centralized entities, like Kraken, Coinbase. You know, I'm a former Kraken employee. Kraken and Coinbase, I think, when they look, you know, Kraken was one of the first to adopt Lightning. Uh, it was, I think, it was like Bitfinex and Kraken were the first two exchanges to adopt Lightning. You know, when exchanges look at how their users interact with protocols, they're going to want to give them, you know, lowest fee transaction types where they can move their assets out and in and out of that centralized company with ease. Uh, so speed and uh, efficiency. So like sp- efficiency would be speed and cost. Uh, Lightning brings users both of those uh, speed and cost for those types of transactions. So I think it's very bullish to see, you know, I think Binance and Coinbase at the same time implemented Lightning. Binance already did. Coinbase is exploring it. It's funny that they haven't prioritized it thus far because, you know, Bitcoin is the number one held asset on their exchange and number one traded asset. You know, even if you're not a Bitcoin maxi or, or super Bitcoin bull, 
just from a pure business perspective, you would want to treat it as a first class citizen. So it's good to see them, I think, be a, a good steward and listen to some customer feedback on hey, you know, people want to move their money in and out of Coinbase with efficiency and same with Binance as well. So I think this is great. I could see a lot of other LT, you know, the L2s are blooming both on Bitcoin and Ethereum. This is going to require a lot of integration work. So it'll be interesting to see how exchanges prioritize that because, you know, Bitcoin has a, another half dozen L2s. Ethereum's got about a dozen and, uh, you know, it depends on the exchange, but different ones have integrated different L2s. And so it'll be very interesting to see how that that develops as well. Yes, exactly. I think even today, uh, OKX announced their L2 and it was last week, uh, Kraken came out their L2. So it's very much breaking, like the, the entire like L2 wars are breaking open where we have like the true open source ones not linked to any centralized entity. Now a lot of exchanges are also entering the space trying to like tap their existing user base into the L2. So that's maybe that's a discussion for a different day, but it's it's I think it's a very interesting development as well. Do you think on, on Coinbase specific, it might have to do, and you already alluded to it earlier, with Taproot assets now being rolled out on the Lightning Network, where they could use it as more a, a settlement layer rather than purely for like Bitcoin specific purposes. Do you think that's something they could explore as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, Tether was first moved on Omni, which was a Bitcoin L2. So most people forget that Bitcoin used to clear most Tether transactions back in the day, and then it moved to other chains as fees became more expensive. You know, it's not a big leap of faith to look at, you know, will they want to move other assets on these L2s, and especially with like Taproot assets and, and other types of, you know, and also like, you know, for example, Binance just implemented BRC20s, which allows you to move other asset types. Again, L1 is not very efficient to move these assets, but if people want to use it, people want to use it. So it was really interesting to see that uh, for for Bitcoin specifically. But yeah, I mean, it's, it makes a lot of sense that, you know, it's interesting to see, you know, when I was talking about L2s, I was talking about more industry adopted L2s versus like company created L2s. You know, as you highlighted, Coinbase created their own L2 and then uh, Kraken has talked about creating their own L2 as well. Uh, which is really interesting to see that. I did not expect that from these companies. I'm interested to see how it plays out. My personal view is that irrespective of how it plays out, I think it's a positive for the ecosystem because users who are currently using centralized exchanges at least will get to know like Web3, like truly Web3 native products, right? It's truly the offering of the L2 and also like the embedded Web3 wallet. So like the borders between centralized and decentralized finance are blurring quite a bit, with especially like centralized finance moving into the space to offer these type of products, potentially tap into like liquidity for like long tail tokens where it's very difficult to maintain. So I personally think it's, it's a very interesting development. If we take a step back and we look at where we are in the Bitcoin cycle, right? Because this is very important. It is a four-year cycle. We're about to, like, the halving is projected to happen uh, the beginning of next year, like March, April, depending on how you look at it. Every cycle, it seems to happen. But again, like, the discussion around, like, block rewards and transaction fees are actually, like, heating up again. And it's a very interesting moment in time because we, at the same time, also have ordinals and BRC actually pushing up transaction fees. Looking on chain, we're seeing a spike in fees. Um, I would love to hear your view on like Bitcoin's security model and how you think like this eventually will play out as like the block rewards fade and as we continue moving into like 
next stages of the halving. It would be great to hear your thoughts there. Yeah, it's a, it's a question I've explored very deeply. Uh, back in 2019, I wrote a comprehensive piece around the decline. So to highlight the problem here or the potential problem, Bitcoin's block reward is comprised of two different pieces. Uh, the block reward is what miners are incentivized with when they mine Bitcoin. So the Bitcoin miners expend capital, so upfront capital, buying the machines and electricity, and they're rewarded with the block reward. Now, the reward is comprised of transaction fees and the subsidy. The subsidy is the newly minted Bitcoin. Now, as we know, Bitcoin's supply curve kind of looks like this. So over time, in, in every single halving, the halving stands for the newly minted number of coins in each block drops in half. So each halving drops in half and half and half and half until it drops to basically zero. Transaction fees over time need to replace the subsidy in order to incentivize miners uh, to continue to mine Bitcoin. Bitcoin's security model is based on the fact that miners would rather behave properly and order transactions sequentially versus and be compensated with the block reward versus misbehave and reorganize or try to do 51% attacks. So the argument is that if we look into the future, there could be a problem where transaction fees have not replaced the subsidy to a degree that would make Bitcoin stable or safe. I keep saying the word potential because we don't know if it will be a problem. It could be a problem. There's two core parts of this argument that I really don't like. One is that Bitcoin had far less security spend. So the security budget is essentially how much miners spend on X time basis. How much block reward have they accumulated? And also you could look at it from like how much uh, money have they spent on machines and energy. That's called like the security budget. Well, Bitcoin had a far weaker security budget historically and has had no problem. There's no 51% attacks. So if we look into the past, we have that. And if we look into the future, there is no number that is a magic security budget number. We don't know what an appropriate rate of security spend should be. There's three different ways to think about it. You've got like a certain level, like $100 billion a year, $10 billion, $1 billion, whatever it may be. You could have a percentage of stock or flow. Those are the other two. Percentage of stock would be like as a percentage of the market cap, this much is spent on the security budget or as a percentage of flow. So this amount moved on chain this year. This is what the security budget looks like. You can come up with whatever arbitrary subjective number you want for either of the three, but the reality is we have no idea. You know, you could look at some people have proposed, uh, you know, the U.S. Uh, defense budget would be an approximate level that you could come up with because the government would have to spend an equivalent amount of money buying up the miners and then essentially burning them because they would they would use those miners to do perform reorgs or 51% attacks, uh, which would make the value of Bitcoin drop. And since the Bitcoin miners can only produce Bitcoin, the only worthwhile attack on Bitcoin is if you're willing to burn the machines. You know, I think there's a couple, I think both sides are a little bit intellectually dishonest here on a lot of the Ethereum maxis are very intellectually dishonest where they claim there's this huge gaping problem that won't can never be solved and Bitcoin's doomed. And the only way to solve it is to change Bitcoin's 21 million hard cap. And I think there's so many holes in that argument. It's just so dishonest that people bring that up. Again, it might be an issue a while from now. We don't even know what an appropriate security spend should be. And then, of course, even if there is an issue, you don't have to change the 21 million hard cap. There's other ways to fix it. And then finally, ordinals solve the problem. You know, ordinals sort of solve this problem accidentally as we saw Bitcoin transaction fees go up. You know, the core premise of the naysayers uh, side, you know, they basically said, 
we don't believe that there will ever be increased demand for Bitcoin block space. And I find that argument very dishonest. There will be no use case for Bitcoin block space over the next next decade. You know, like I find that just very, very, like that's a crazy assumption to make. So that's what most of like the Ethereum maxi detractors highlighted. And I found that to be dishonest, like very dishonest. On the Bitcoiner side as well, I think there's a fair share of dishonesty there too, where, you know, some of the hardcore Puritan types are like, oh, security budget is not a problem. I'm like, well, it isn't. I agree, but it could be a problem. Like, no, 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 it'll never be a problem. And I'm like, well, we can at least debate like what level of security spend might be appropriate or, you know, what those game theory environments look like. And instead, some of them kind of brush it off as an immaterial argument. And I, I kind of find that dishonest as well. So, you know, I'm somewhat in the middle here where I'm like, Oh, looks like we uh, accidentally solved our security budget problems with ordinal, ordinals, or at least that's what that's what the meme is. So yeah, I think uh, ordinals are great because you know one, it brings more users to Bitcoin through different types of speculative activities, NFTs, BRC twenties. It helps secures Bitcoin's long term security budget. You know, I like different art projects outside of of crypto, and I. I have different assets outside of Bitcoin. I mean, Bitcoin by far is most of my net worth, but there's nothing wrong with, with holding art or anything else. I think uh, the Puritan type of Bitcoiners who think NFTs are terrible, it's kind of bizarre. I mean, people really like art. You know, they got lawn art. They've got pink flamingos to Picassos to, you know, humans like to decorate the space around them. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, I'm certainly not sitting here and, and telling people they should buy uh, BRC20 or something like that. But, uh, you know, certainly when it comes to art, I think, you know, those are really fun and creative and, and really interesting. I fully agree. I think it's it's very interesting and actually encouraging to see that out of, not out of the blue necessarily, but like all of a sudden something which only like didn't exist 11 months ago actually is generating so much um, volume on chain and, and, and meaningfully like pushing up the fees. If we assume that the security budget is not an issue and we just have this natural subsidization of transaction fees instead of like block rewards over the next like let's say half century in my view like side chains and l2s only become more and more important as a lot of and you mentioned it earlier as well like uh, the high transaction fees actually render a lot of economic use cases and viable right so as the transaction fees actually like make up a more significant part of the entire block reward we should see less and less use cases actually be viable on the main chain, right? Like maybe a thought exercise. If you had to make a guess of like one of the last possible use cases on the main chain, where would your where would you place the bets? Like what would you think be the one of the last viable? I mean it's gonna be high value asset high value transfers. Like that's what it'll be. It's a, it's a purely pricing mechanic. So any high value assets, that'll be large chunks of Bitcoin. That'll be very valuable. You know, like for example, one of my clients is Taproot Wizards. You know, Taproot Wizards are one of the hottest ordinals projects out there. If Wizards become super, super hot and, uh, you know, those are worth like a, the price of a Picasso or something, then assets like that could move on chain. I'm mean, By the way, that is not a forward looking statement. I'm not predicting that that could happen. I'm just using that as an example of what might happen. Currently, Taproot Wizards are not available for sale. Etc. It, it's a very it's a very simple function of like whatever the transaction fee is, you know, each individual buyer or seller is going to have their own subjective level above that that the asset's got to be worth to to want to move it. Some people are willing to pay twenty dollars to move a hundred bucks. Some people are willing to pay you know twenty dollars to move a million bucks. Right. So just depends on the price you know elasticity of the transactor. TLDR: high value transactions. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think also. You have a specific subset of, of 
the Bitcoin ecosystem, which isn't treating every transaction the same. There's like this this ask from them to leave the main chain for specific type of transactions, such as like minima exchange settlements, anything else. I think I, I, I'm curious to hear your view, but I'm of the view that anyone who's willing to pay the transaction fee, like creates an eligible and like equal transaction onto the main chain. There's no discrimination between transactions, I think. Yeah, I mean, that's the whole point of Bitcoin, right? Is that it's permissionless and that anyone transacting can pay whatever fee they'd like and move whatever coins they like for whatever purpose they want. They might find it silly for that someone wants to buy a JPEG, you know, an NFT, but that's totally subjective and arbitrary. And that's the entire point of Bitcoin is that people can use it for whatever purpose they want. So I think the folks that are degrading certain use cases are extremely hypocritical because it's like, well, if you want someone to morally weigh in on on every single transaction, congratulations, you've invented fiat all over again. That's the whole point of Bitcoin is even if you find it silly, you should still fight for someone's right to do it that way. I'm not advocating for people to go buy X, Y, or Z asset, but I'm like, hey, if someone wants to go put pink flamingos in their front lawn, you know, like, I think it's silly, but like, someone likes Mercedes and someone likes BMW, you know, and they might fiercely hate the other one. So many things are subjective like that. And that's the whole point of Bitcoin is that it's permissionless, that no one controls it. You can use it for whatever you'd like. And I think this is a prime example of that. So the idea that they would want to constrict Bitcoin or they would shame people for using it for a certain reason is, is quite silly. I think some of them have referred to it as graffiti. I'm like, oh, okay, sure. Like you're free to have that opinion. But I mean, that's pretty wild that you would claim that they're like dishonoring a permissionless protocol because it's called permissionless, right? Like that's the whole point. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think to your point, like we need to be mindful of going full circle and steering in the same direction as, as Fiat ones that I'm pretty sure like it also stemmed from a very noble goal and then ultimately like ended up transforming into something sub-ideal, uh, if I may call it like this. Uh, it, you, you mentioned earlier like high value transactions might potentially settle on, on the main chain. For me, like it, I instantly think about like institutional investors type who would still be willing like to settle transactions on the main chain. If we look at where the institutional investors are currently, I feel like a lot of the market is also looking and 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 like potentially hyping up Bitcoin ETFs uh, being approved. Like there's a couple of dates. I think the 17th of November is another potential approval dates later this week. If, if you look at the entire timeline by March next year, everything like there needs to be like a, like a decision anyway by uh, the SEC. It's a very obvious narrative. Institutional money is coming. What do you think would be different? Imagine if we wake up tomorrow morning and all of a sudden a majority of ETFs is approved. How do you think the ecosystem would change for the good and for the bad? Like, do you see potential, like, with the benefits, but do you also see, like, what are the potential challenges? Yeah, so first and foremost, this is what success looks like. I think a lot of, like, and by the way, I'm super libertarian. You know, I've got I've got six guns in my closet. You know, I'm, I'm a fierce uh, libertarian proponent. You know, I'm an early Bitcoiner type who, you know, I'm, I'm into all sorts of very, like, extreme freedom sort of exercises, right? And I think Bitcoin is a representation of that. But Bitcoin isn't my entire personality. I've got other, you know, aspects. I'd say libertarian is is probably the closest, I think, like condensed version of who I am, just very much freedom loving. You know, when we look at at Bitcoin ETF, a lot of those types, you know, my kind of my cohort are like, oh my God, this this means that corporates have taken over and Bitcoin has been bastardized and it's it's over. And I'm like, no, this is what winning looks like. Bitcoin hasn't changed at all. Bitcoin hasn't 
bent over. It hasn't moved. It hasn't been corrupted. It is infiltrating them. It's infiltrating the existing financial system. It is being legitimized as a world reserve asset, a goal 2.0. I mean, this is what we fought for the whole time. I totally agree that we need to educate folks that holding Bitcoin in an ETF is not holding Bitcoin in your own self-custodied wallet. You know, that there's a lot of education that's required there. However, even with the most, you know, even with the best education we can give people, people will still choose to store their Bitcoin with custodians. For example, gold, you know, like gold has been around for thousands and thousands of years and a lot of people still store it at their bank, even though they could put it in their backyard or in their own vault. So, you know, that's a, that's a classic sort of, uh, you know, private key or gold management has been around for a while and people still choose to use custodians, even with all that knowledge out there and accumulated knowledge throughout history, right? You know, people have seen gold seized uh, in the United States alone, uh, the executive order that was done in the 1930s. So yeah, I think, you know, there'll always be this spectrum of, you know, Bitcoin doesn't change, but people will access it in different ways. What is good too about the Bitcoin ETF is that now all the people that buy Bitcoin and have it in the ETF, they're going to be fighting for us and fighting for Bitcoin. The alternative is we never make it easy enough for them to buy it and only allow people to like self-custody it. A billion people don't buy Bitcoin because of that. And then they're against us. You know, this at least, even if they don't self-custody yet, at least now they have skin in the game and they will fight for us. Again, not advocating that they do that. And I very much would encourage them not to do that. However, they will do it. And this is human. This is just human nature. But now we have more team members on our side. So if the government moves to seize that ETF and seize all those Bitcoin, well, they're going to have hundreds of millions of Americans potentially all, all up in arms about it. And that means that more people will help fight the political in government side around uh, Bitcoin regulations. So that's an overall, I think vastly overall, this is great for Bitcoin. Also, Bitcoin isn't proof of stake. BlackRock or anyone else holding these Bitcoin, which by the way, I believe BlackRock would use a custodian. Whichever custodian holds it, they don't have any voting power over Bitcoin. They have no control over the Bitcoin network. It's immaterial how much will they hold. You know, with proof of stake systems, that does get a little bit different because with proof of stake, you know, the coin ownership actually gives them a, a staking vote AK, like I know it's a very rough, rough analogy, but uh, that would give them some influence over the protocol. Going a little bit deeper on that point. So, because obviously with new team players, there's different consensus. There's more opinions, actually. Do you think proof of work would be more shielded against ossification of the entire protocol layer? Because like specific um, entities who have an opinion aren't necessarily able to fully push through their own opinion for like the deficit of anyone else is, is is that is that am i hearing that correctly or or that's that's too blunt of a an, an assumption are you saying are you talking about proof of work versus proof of stake specifically or are you talking about governance like 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 protocol changes first proof of work versus proof of stake in general and then i would love to hear your take on like do you think an etf approval of bitcoin means potential ossification of the protocol because you have more stakeholders and more opinions and, and it's diff more difficult to change. Yeah. So with proof of work, you know, miners expend, expend upfront capital, CapEx, buying the machines. And those machines only produce Bitcoin when you run electricity through them. OPEX. So the electricity is the OPEX. With proof of stake, you don't have much in terms of cost of setup cost and uptime costs. There are uptime costs, but not nearly as much as proof of work. Proof of stake is provably staking capital that you could burn if you misbehave properly versus proof of work, which you've already spent the capital 
and then you earn it. So very different systems. There's different game theoretic trade-offs of both. Personally, I'm more of a fan of proof of work. It's more based on just raw physics and it's extremely hard uh, game theoretically. Um, I think with proof of stake, you've got a couple issues. One would be like an ETF where uh, if they accumulate enough you know, voting power, they could potentially work with other factions and start to influence um, you know, the majority and influence, you know, there's all sorts of game theory here. So I'm, I'm glossing over a lot of details, but that would give us an entity like BlackRock a potential more control over the network if they misbehaved prop, if they misbehaved and worked with others in a, in a dishonest manner to influence, uh, you know, the ordering of transactions. Also with proof of stake too, they have a, there's a fundamental flaw. It's called weak subjectivity. If the internet ever gets partitioned, even for a second, and you have different versions of the network running, there is no way to reconcile the networks back together. And so you would require a centralized leader to point to one of the networks and be like, this is the canonical network and we're all going to merge with this one. Versus proof of work has a very elegant way of merging the chains back together. It's just basically the longest accumulated proof of work chain becomes the longest chain, becomes the primary chain. That circumstance will happen someday. I don't know when it will happen, but it will. If these networks are meant to run for the rest of human time, it for certain will. And so I think that's, that's an example of why I also like proof of work versus proof of stake. And so when we look at, you know, an ETF, so it influences the underlying game theory, but it also influences the protocol development. So protocol development is like, you know, changes that are made to the code. You know, Bitcoiners, Bitcoin doesn't change very much because Bitcoiners don't want to, you know, be swapping out engines on their, you know, the, essentially, if you think about Bitcoin, as like an airplane, it's already it's already been cruising at sixty thousand feet. It's doing well. It's it's going Mach three. It's it's performing perfectly. So you know you, you do a little tweak to the engine and it doesn't work well. You know the plane could explode. You know Ethereum moving from proof of work to proof of stake. You know, it's like swapping out the engines mid flight. A lot of game theory going on there. A lot of issues that could have occurred. So Bitcoin is a little bit more cautious when it comes to upgrades with bigger players in the ecosystem with a lot of money. There's a worry that they could influence developers in development of both Bitcoin, Ethereum, et cetera. We're okay from that. I think both Bitcoin and Ethereum are probably all right and safe from that because, you know, it's all done in open source manner. You know, funding of different developers is usually well known. There's not a, like a sneaky way you could introduce something into a protocol. The, each Bitcoin has, I think, a more rigorous process and a longer process of development where, you know, it takes years to get something implemented. I don't think it's, there's no way to like shoe in or, or push in a change, you know, just with money. It would require a very lengthy process. And, you know, at the end of the day, people have to upgrade all their nodes. And if they disagree with the update, you know, they don't have to run that. You know, that's why Bitcoin doesn't like to do hard forks because it makes everything, you know, if the network continues to run as is, no one, you don't have to switch over. You can, you can choose to not upgrade your node. I don't think it's that big of a deal from a governance perspective or a game theory perspective for Bitcoin. I think there's a slight worry for uh, game theory for proof of stake, but not for proof of work. It's very interesting. Maybe not necessarily on the L1s, but I think as more and more stakeholders with like deep pockets and a lot of capital behind them enter the the space, I think. I think we'll end up finding pockets in ecosystems, maybe on the middleware, maybe on the application layer, maybe even like developers who get subsidized, that there's potential centralization in, in specific pockets of this ecosystem. Because if you look at it, it's a very layered system, right? Like everything is 
is, is just build up on one another, upon like foundational technology. Even blockchain itself is, is, is built on other foundational technology. So I think as we stack up all these layers and as we develop some layers, maybe on the application side, I think we'll, we'll face some centralization from like very big uh, entities who are pushing their agenda. But knowing that at least on the L1 side, you're working with something which is already battle tested to a certain extent, has been running for over a decade um, and, and, and has like survived multiple cycles. It is already like something I think very reassuring, to be honest. So we're almost running on to time, but I, I saved this, uh, this question for last, with the last month we opened our applications for our Bitcoin base camp, uh, the first of hopefully many. And um, you agreed up uh, to be a mentor for the program, for which we, we thank you very much. I wanted to ask you maybe like going into the program, like what pockets of the ecosystem or what pockets of the meta layers are you excited about and or are you excited about of exploring actually? Like what are you excited about in the ecosystem? Yeah, well, look, I mean, it's it's pretty simple. So when I look at my experience over a decade in this space, which I'm one of the oldest folks to be still working in, in crypto, companies, the protocols that stuck around were built around speculative activities. Exchanges, for example, brokerages, uh, the buying and selling, lending and borrowing, uh, yield farming, staking. You've also got, you know, uh, NFTs, you know, different asset types. Anything that allows you to access that functionality, that's where the alpha is. That's where the money is. Um, exchanges are the centralized version of that. You've got different AMMs kind of representing the decentralized version of exchanges. And so I think that there's a huge amount of, of surface area here. Uh, both on ordinals and L2s, on top of Bitcoin for, uh, you know, similar functional type apps uh, to buy and sell. You know, there's a lot of uh, DEXs built for ordinals that came out, which are really cool. Using partially signed Bitcoin transactions, uh, you can actually build DEXs. And so seeing those pop up, that was that was really cool to see. A lot of people didn't think that was possible on Bitcoin, but that definitely showed that I think a lot of people haven't been paying attention. So there's other use cases like that. But yeah, t tap into what do your customers want? And in these bull runs, what they want is to be able to access their assets and to buy and sell, lend, borrow, and utilize them in certain fashions. By no means am I recommending people to go do this with their portfolio. I'm just saying from a builder's perspective, you build what people want to use it for. And so a lot of people want to use it for that. A lot of people want to buy, sell, lend, borrow. You know, I've done some of these activities myself, of course. I definitely recommend people hodl. But of course, I've looked at different yield opportunities because I've hodled for 10 years. And so everyone has different life circumstances and will, will want to buy, sell, and borrow through off a yield at different points. Uh, but yeah, anything that allows people to do that in an elegant, seamless manner, that's where the alpha is captured. I think with Bitcoin, you've got the biggest asset in the space, the most liquidity, the most potential TVL to be unlocked, and the number one user base. Ethereum and Solana are very small compared to the size of Bitcoin. Uh, and we're talking, you know, this is the biggest app store to build on top of. That's why I'm bullish on this. This isn't even a maxi take. This is just like an objective developer take. If you want to go build an application with the most users, Bitcoin has it. And it has the most liquidity and then the most TVL to unlock. So I think we're going to see kind of the DeFi flowers bloom in this next bull run. And it will largely be around speculation. I do not think it's going to be around payments. People do not want to spend their crypto on coffees, et cetera. This isn't like a personal opinion. It's just, it's what I've observed in the marketplace. Yeah, I think it's, it's very interesting. And, and that's really the key value proposition of the program is we're trying to bring utility to 
the Bitcoin holders half a trillion market cap, most held digital asset globally, to truly bring this utility and activate 99% of Bitcoin, which is currently being hodled in portfolios, right? Again, no investment advice. Hodling is great, but having additional utility to the network in terms of like DeFi or other value propositions, social fi, like all very exciting stuff, I think we'll be building uh, in our program. So with that, I would like to wrap up this episode. Again, Dan, big thanks for joining us and sharing your view on all the exciting stuff we're going through in the Bitcoin ecosystem. Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please make sure you subscribe, rate, and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission of Web3. 